from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Catherine Isbister, an accomplished game designer, educator, and author. Catherine is known for her work exploring how emotions are evoked through interactive entertainment, and she works with students and collaborators to bring innovative ideas to life. I think a lot of beginning designers don't realize that the idea is worth nothing if you can't actually build it and test it and take it to the next step. Her new book, Games and Emotions, is due out February 2016 from MIT Press. Join me for a glimpse into Catherine's approach to teaching, researching, and creating emotionally evocative games. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us today on the Getting to Alpha podcast. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Catherine, give us a whirlwind tour of your background. How'd you get started? And how did you decide what to pursue along the way? Well, I actually have a PhD in communication from Stanford, and I was driven to go get that PhD because of an experience I had in my first job out of college. So I was working at a zoo in Chicago, and we had an exhibition that was all about birds. And I have to tell you, Amy, that I'm not a fan of birds. Uh, they're not my favorite animal. And I used to pass through the birdhouse at the zoo every day on my way to my office and didn't really think much about birds. But one day, an interactive kiosk appeared in which you had to try to be a red-winged blackbird for a season. And you had to choose where to put your nest and who to try to attract as a mate and how to take care of your babies. And you know you could lose nestlings along the way. And I suddenly found myself very caught up in what was going on for birds. And I thought, you know, that is amazing that such a sort of not very interesting and rich media experience, yet an interactive experience, basically a game, could create so much empathy in me. And that's what got me interested in pursuing what exactly was going on with games and how they affect people. So I talked to a lot of people and they recommended that I pursue that by getting a PhD in communication. So that's what I did. Uh, And after that, I did a postdoc in Japan, and I worked for some startups, and and then I ended up being a full time career academic, and I've I've helped to build game design and research programs at several universities, uh, both here in the U.S. and also overseas, and and now I'm at UC Santa Cruz in the computational media department. Now, there's a thread that runs through so much of your work that you just told us a story about how this all got started, which is the emotional thread. Your specialty is games and emotion, and you have a book coming out about this, right? That's true. Yeah, I I spent the last uh, few years trying to polish this book, which is coming out uh, in February, uh, that really summarizes some of my thinking about how game designers evoke emotion in players to get people to have a more subtle and interesting discussion about why that happens and how it happens with a lot of examples of games that are off the beaten path that are games that everyday people don't always think about when they think about emotions and games. So how did you develop this point of view about games and emotions? 
Well, you know, I was actually an English literature undergrad, and I always loved the written word, and I loved the way that identifying with characters and traveling alongside a narrative could make you feel as a person. And I think this experience that I had at the zoo with this this interactive kiosk was, wow, the minute you have agency and you have choice and you're more active in what's going on, there are a whole other set of emotions that can be unlocked uh, to create a really powerful experience. So from the beginning, uh, though I, I love the fact that games are goal-driven and and um, get people interested in complex systems and get them thinking in different ways. My own personal passion around games was always around building emotion and empathy and connection for people and, and helping them in a sense deepen their own humanity through the play experience. Wow. So today in your practice, you are uh, now a professor at UC Santa Cruz, correct? That's right. And... So what role are you going to be playing in bringing new games and new ideas to life in in that role? Well, for the past few years, before I joined the faculty here, I was was the research director of the Game Innovation Lab at New York University. And uh, while I was there, I built a suite of games uh, that were looking at co-located physical play. So when people play together, and particularly when they're moving around together, how do you design really interesting and engaging social and emotional experiences for players? Uh, so we did a we did a, a B boy B girl dance battle game. We did a, a game that used surveillance cameras, and most recently we did one that used costumes as game controllers. And I expect that one of the things I'll do here is continue to build on that work and um, deepen the research questions that I'm asking about how we can shape the future of games and gaming technology, but also technology in general by, you know, getting a little outside of the box and how we think about supporting that kind of interaction. Um, and of course, there's a lot of really interesting things people are doing in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz has a particular specialty in thinking about artificial intelligence in games and building new kinds of narrative game experiences. So I'm really looking forward to collaborating with my colleagues here on working on those sorts of questions and challenges in gaming. I want to follow up on what you're talking about with the different aspects of experiencing a game, because it really touches on something I've been noticing a lot about game designers and designers in general, which is that designer, there isn't just one kind of designer. Designers come at what they're doing and players come at their experience of a game from really different points of view. So both as a player and as a designer, you focus in on emotions. That's your um, North Star. Mm-hmm. That's your point of view. I'm a system designer. I've always enjoyed engaging in systems, taking systems apart, putting them back together. Mm-hmm. When I've worked on games, I participate in the whole, but I'm often designing a system. I'm also a game designer. I know people, they start with the narrative. Tracy uh, Fullerton, who runs the department at USC, very much a narrative game designer. Brilliant at that, you know? And it's so interesting because we all collaborate together, but people come at their creative endeavors from different points of view. I think that's very true. And what you were saying made me think about this last collaboration on the Costumes as Game Controllers project was with an artist, Kahu Abe, who's actually was the artist in residence in my lab at NYU. And one of the things I really enjoyed about working with her 
is she was beginning from a very particular aesthetic experience she wanted, aesthetic and emotional, I would say, experience she wanted to happen between the players of this game that she was working on. And everything about the decisions she made in the crafting of these wearable components and the, the interaction strategies that happened and the positioning and the, the ways that people would pose and engage was driven by that core aesthetic and emotional goal. And I would say that's really where I'm coming from in doing the kind of exploration I do. And it, it moves from games proper into play and playful situations and technologies. But the, the unifying factor is really if we start from a position of thinking about people's emotional and social experience, how can we rethink what we're doing and why we're doing it to create an experience that's supportive and compelling in those particular ways? So in that endeavor, what games that are out there that we could look at and play on any platform have inspired you? What games do you think deliver really interesting, compelling emotions? Well, I think that one interesting trend that's happened recently is an attempt to capture subtle, everyday experiences of other people through the rituals of play. So an example uh, there would be Cart Life. I don't know if you've played that game, but that was a game that took many awards at the Independent Games Festival and was just designed for you to try to survive as somebody running a food cart in a city and nicely combined these minutiae of making decisions about pricing and what to put out there, these kinds of, these kinds of management mechanics was just enough narrative and background flavoring about who you were and how you related to other people really evoked something of what it was like uh, to have that kind of daily existence. And I thought that was a really nice, almost like a haiku or sort of sort of poetic endeavor, right? Creating a particular aesthetic experience for people. Uh, that is the kind of resonant experience that I find interesting. When you were talking about it, it made me think of Journey. Sure. Journey is another great example. It's actually the only game I can think of that gave me, that felt like it was created in an artistic way and delivered a very singular, powerful, emotional experience with enough variability to make it game-like. Absolutely. And another interesting thing about Journey is that it is a social game and that it's very difficult to artfully craft particularly networked social interaction. I think in-person interaction, the kind of thing that Kaho and I were working on in that costumes and as game controllers project, you have a lot more control over social dynamics when you are controlling the here and now. And I think that the creators of Journey, it was absolutely masterful what they did there in terms of shaping how you encounter others in that game and constraining what you can do to create the emotional and social bonding experience they wanted you to have and without it going off the rails. And that I think that's a high art form, actually. And I think there's a lot of potential in approaching social gaming in that way. Yep. And a lot of what they do, what they did in Journey is took a lot of things out. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that's I think that's true. I think there are so many things going on when people engage with one another and as they, they, and people bring so much to the table emotionally too, that it's, I personally think it's a lot better to 
make artful use of ambiguity and simplicity to try to work with the richness of what people are bringing to the table instead of uh, trying to sort of bowl them over with a lot of high fidelity material coming their way. I think that can easily backfire. Yep. So you've worked with and around a lot of different people bringing their ideas to life. Absolutely. What are some of the really common mistakes you've seen people made, and frankly, you yourself have made, that you now work hard to do things differently? Well, you know, part of my training is actually in user research and usability. And I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they're afraid to share their ideas early and they don't put enough work into figuring out the best ways to prototype and convey and test out their ideas with others early and often. And, you know, I've, I've had that issue myself. I mean, even in the, in, even in the area of human computer interaction research, which is where I usually publish, if you look at how often people iterate a system, it's not nearly frequently enough and it's not nearly along the, the lines of what typically happens in game development. Uh, and that, and that's quite frankly necessary in order to achieve an actually engaging, highly interactive experience, right? So I think that's one of the big mistakes I see beginners make. So what do they do instead? Well, they talk about their idea a lot. They spend a lot of time in this verbal idea phase. And then they may linger too long in trying to craft a prototype that gets to where they would like it to be without sharing it with people and getting feedback. And with, with game design students, sometimes that can mean they, they really don't actually have the, the technical or artistic or other chops they need to get a prototype together that represents their idea. And part of what they need to be doing is finding the right teammates to do that or modulating their ideas so that they can actually craft something um, I think a lot of beginning designers don't realize that the idea is worth nothing if you can't actually build it and test it and take it to the next step. So even if you love some idea, it may just be completely out of scale with what you can actually execute on. And it's not really worth pursuing for too long, right? It's not worth wasting the time on. Yeah. As Eric uh, Zimmerman says, less brainstorming, more prototyping. Yes. I mean, I think that's one reason why game jams have become so popular. I think it's actually a really nice place, apprenticeship place where people can learn about what can actually be done and how you do it. And uh, where like-minded others show up and, and try their hand at, at game making. I think it teaches people a lot more than becoming expert critics, you know, by playing a lot of games. It's sort of like the difference between Quentin Tarantino being a you know, a guy working in a video rental shop and actually starting to be a director, you know? So let's build on that. Um, I have a couple of really tactical questions about process. Mm -hmm. So how do you approach testing and iteration when you're first engaging in a new project? How do you decide or how do you help your students decide or how do you and your artistic collaborators decide which ideas to pursue and which to filter out in those early stages? Do you have some method? Or some process that you use? Well, you know, I am a, I am a researcher. So I do believe on standing on the shoulders of others. So one thing that I always have students do and that I do myself is when I have an idea or they have an idea, I say, well, 
you know, show me things that are in the landscape of this idea. Are there things that are similar that you like for some reason or another that you think aren't delivering for some reason or another to try to really grasp what the current landscape is and where the thing you're thinking of making might contribute? Um, I don't think that's always necessary. I think sometimes people just go off and make something amazing and it just cre completely creates a new niche. But I think most ideas benefit from doing that kind of landscape analysis where you look at, you know, because it helps you also articulate why do I want to make this thing and how is it different from all the things that are out there? How is my thing going to be different? So I would say that's that's an important first step that I think a lot of novice designers don't take. Awesome. I'm going to assume that's one of your top tips for doing faster, smarter prototyping and iteration. Absolutely. I mean, I think another thing is to not get wedded too early to a particular technology unless that is an explicit constraint of your project. Because we found in the research projects that sometimes an idea requires a different constellation of technologies than you thought at the beginning. So uh, don't just dive right into a particular platform or a particular software. Uh, you know, for us, it would be a game engine, right? Uh, but think about, you know, where that idea would, would bloom the best and then think about, well, who, who could work on it? What's the team to get together? How do you think about designing for a particular player, audience, customer? How does that play? Because I know you're doing mostly research projects, but you're also training game designers, many of whom are going to go out and get jobs in the world. So how, like, for instance, during your testing phase, Mm -hmm. um, who do you tell them to recruit and why? Right. So, well, so I actually was teaching a course at NYU called Games and Players, which was an overview of how to engage with players at all different parts of the cycle of game design and development. And an interesting thing that I had the students do was learn a little bit about ethnography. So certainly once you have a working prototype, you can start to put that in front of the kinds of people you think will want to play your game. Although you have to be careful because if it doesn't have a high degree of polish, sometimes people can get very distracted by that. So you have to be very targeted in how you ask for feedback. But I also had the students really spend some time in environments where the kinds of people they wanted to design for were hanging around and playing other things. To, to sort of open their eyes about the context of play and the motivations for play and the sorts of rich things that are going on socially around play that could shape the kinds of design choices they might make. So an example of that might be, okay, you want to design a casual game you think is going to be played on the subway and kind of fits and starts by a certain kind of person. Well, you know, while you're riding the subway, think about, you know, kind of surreptitiously watching people who are on their phones and look to be playing games. What's going on? What are they doing? You know, do they switch tasks? What's, what's happening for them? How are people around them relating to that? So on and so forth. So um, have you had experience both with in-person and remote collaboration on projects? Yes, I definitely have. Let's talk about that. This is a big topic in the world I live in, um, both personally because we're, how do creative people bring their ideas to life by collaborating with a team? Innovation is a team sport, right? It sure. really is. So I'll, more and more our work takes place with distributed teams or we're traveling and we need to keep our project going, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So 
what are some of the lessons you've learned? Starting off with like, what are some of the practices or tools, either one, that you've tried for collaboration that have either worked really well and you're like, yeah, I learned something. I'm doing that now. Or boy, I tried that and it really didn't work. There's a great lesson learned there. What have you learned about, you know, getting work done with teams, both remotely and in person? Well, I mean, I would say from my own experience, one thing I've learned is it's pretty important to lay the groundwork for a good collaboration with face-to-face time. I think you can you can build something together once you have got some common ground with the people involved, but I think it's very hard to initiate that and maintain that purely at a distance. So I'd say for me personally, I've had the best luck with investing some time up front getting to know people and working with them some in person and that, 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 you know, that then can carry you quite a ways. I mean, the other thing is I think it's really important to have regular meetings, just have a kind of a drumbeat, especially when you're working across time zones. I think it's a lot easier to just set a regular time to get together that, you know, works in both time zones and just keep doing that, have a standing meeting. I think that it gets really discouraging when you spend a lot of time playing scheduling tag and doing doodles and that sort of thing. It can just sort of suck the energy out of a collaboration. Have you uh, experimented with tools to uh, um, support that like Slack or other collaboration tools? Yeah. I mean, I've used Slack a little bit. I have to say that uh, typically with my students and other people I've been working with, it's been more Google Docs and Google Calendars, you know, just very basic sharing tools and then things like Skype and Hangout. Um, I was on one project that used some crazy proprietary file repository that was absolutely awful. Nobody could get into it or figure out how it worked. And I did use Basecamp. I also found that pretty burdensome and not that not that intuitive or easy to deal with. Yeah, I tried Basecamp and found it cumbersome. I'm finding Slack better, but it requires a lot of setting it up so it works well for the particular team you're working with. That makes sense. So any other things that you've learned about collaboration that you would like to avoid? Any things that you tried that you were excited about that like really didn't work out? Well, I mean, I guess one other thing that I think is incredibly important is to be really clear and explicit with everyone who's on a team from the beginning about why everyone is involved, what they hope to get out of it, and what kind of time they have to commit to it. I mean, sometimes you have to really tease those sorts of things out of people. I think the projects I've had that have gone awry have mostly been because people's objectives didn't line up or their time commitments weren't the same. And it's the kind of thing that can be awkward for people to talk about. But especially since I'm, I'm typically in the leader role being the professor, I've just learned to just go after those questions and pursue them in whatever way is necessary to make sure I know what's going on, whether it's in a team meeting or one-on-ones with people and kind of teasing those things out. Cause those are really make or break. Um, also, Sometimes you really like a person, but they have really a lot of issues in working with other team members. So just keeping an eye out for those sorts of things that can really tank a project. Yep. So when you're collaborating with a team, remotely or in person, what is it that's your superpower as a designer, an educator, a creator? What's your sweet spot? 
I think that I'm good at seeing people for what they really have to offer and putting them in a position where they're excited to be doing what they're doing. I'd say that's my sweet spot is seeing people for who they are and what they actually want to do and making sure that all those things synergize and line up. And I think that it can allow you to do pretty crazy things. If everyone feels pretty comfortable and enjoying what they're doing, then they'll make something that's pretty far out and not be too worried about the risk because they're having a good time with it and it feels sustainable and comfortable for them. So what kind of projects light you up the most? Mm, Well, since I'm in the research world, I try to build things that maybe aren't being addressed in the everyday commercial world, you know, that are off the beaten path that represent an alternate possibility space for where we could go. So in some sense, I'm sort of like a science fiction writer, you know, I mean, the projects that I'm most excited about are the ones that we build, and then they're really interesting object lessons for people who are dealing with everyday realities in industry, uh, who can say, oh, huh, kind of scratch their head and say, huh, maybe I'll do a little something like that when the time comes around that that looks like kind of a good idea. Or even if it just makes them scratch their head and, and laugh, it, it can be helpful because it, it's breaking them out of the box of their thinking. And I believe we can get so constrained by the rapid pace and the exigencies of everyday commercial life. And I think it's, it's good to have these really interesting left field things coming out of re- the research world to keep us energized about where we're going after the next, next, next project. So Catherine, what do you think it is that people get wrong about games and emotions? I think there's a stereotype. I think there's a lot of fear about how exciting games are for young people and how compelling they are. And I think that on the surface, when people who don't play games look at games, they see a lot of the the window dressing of games, which can be very violent and even murderous looking and and sort of be shocked and repelled by that and not actually understand what's going on under the surface for people emotionally. And so I think that the everyday people have, in some sense, a little bit been taken for a ride by the press about, you know, either games are going to just, you know, destroy our youth or, or games are going to save us because we're going to apply that incredible energy that that people have for gaming to solve the world's problems. And I think that the truth is more nuanced and complex and it requires having a little bit of literacy about game design, which is opaque to most people who don't play games. They don't understand what's happening uh, as a person engages the game. So, so with my book, I'm actually trying to point out some key innovations game designers have made that really shape how players feel that can be used for all kinds of purposes that are neither inherently good nor inherently evil, right? But that are, you know, similar to film and techniques like cuts and close-ups are the materials that game designers have invented to influence how we feel and how we think. And so I'm really hoping that it will help to shift the conversation a little bit and give people a little bit more literacy for thinking about games and evaluating for themselves. Is that is that educational game that their child brought home actually interesting and valuable or not? And why? And how is it impacting their child emotionally, for example? That's fabulous. So uh, when is this book coming out? 
So February of next year from MIT Press. And the title? It's called How Games Move Us, Emotion by Design. Great. And is there a place people can find out more and perhaps even pre-order it? I think that MIT Press should have some materials up shortly. And is there a place that people who would like to read more about your work can uh, find out? Sure. Yeah, I have a, I have a website. It's katherineinterface.com. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Catherine. Um, before we go, I want to follow up. You're saying that film has, um, that if you study uh, film literacy, you learn about cuts and close-ups and um, positioning shots and all the things that only once you make a film you would actually learn about. Does your book deliver that same language but for game emotions? Yes. So the idea is I'm giving uh, a set of starter concepts about game design and emotion to the reader to then go and be able to take apart what's happening. So some of the examples would be the invention and use of avatars and how profoundly avatars extend the notion of protagonists that we see in film because the avatar is the, uh, the prosthetic person for the player is it's a suit the player puts on and can actually act through and that fundamentally changes the sorts of feelings that can be had in the game so that's that's just one example um, i talk about also in social games how many of the subtle rituals that we enact in everyday life are being heightened and designed in games for example gift giving many people who don't play games may not know that in social online games Gift-giving is a very important ritual that is uh, designed to be even more meaningful sometimes than it is in everyday life. Uh, so these are the sorts of things I think your average person doesn't necessarily realize are happening in games, and, and they can't take apart when they hear someone tell them about a play experience. They don't know how to take apart which parts are influencing that person's feelings. So my intent is, yes, to start providing. I don't claim to have all of it down, but to start start providing that kind of design language for taking apart games, whether or not you're a player. That sounds both fascinating and useful. Well, thanks. I hope it will be. <laughs> Can't wait to read the book. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today and sharing all of your insights and wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.